Welcome to the Get Fit with Jodell podcast. I'm, as usual, Jodell, and as a self-proclaimed advocate for what I call the carnivore with benefits way of eating, I believe that most people um, should be thinking about a meat-based approach, and it's very beneficial to do so. After all, we do have canine teeth for a reason, okay? Some bigger than others, like myself. I've been accused of being like a vampire i think in some of my youtube podcasts so <laughs> doesn't embarrass me because i'm glad i have them so um but how do the teeth play a role into why we should eat meat dr kevin stock has been kind enough to join me today as we put these questions up on the table and answer them based on logic on natural human nature as well as dr stock's knowledge as a dentist helping thousands of people transform their bodies and reclaim their health and get better teeth as well so today we discuss how you can lose fat on a carnivore approach how you can improve sleep issues and sleep apnea naturally and we may even rabbit hole down a trail about Bitcoin and why that might be something you want to consider investing in, especially now. Uh, Dr. T Kevin Stock is a well-educated dentist, a writer, a researcher, a leading advocate in the meat-based diet approach with over two decades of experience and expertise. He's the founder and CEO of the Meat, the meat Health Academy and inventor of the NED, a nasal device to treat sleep-disordered breathing, which I'm eager to hear about. So we have so much to get to. Dr. Stock, I want to first welcome you and say thank Thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk to talk about a diverse range of topics. <laughs> yes, you you have so much to offer somebody who would like look up your information, and that's why I just had to have you on because there's a wide range of ways that you like to help people, and I really appreciate that. So, first, though, I want to dive in right away to the meat based approach. Like, if somebody asked you to briefly tell them why they should be meat based, what would you say? I believe there's species appropriate diets. So cows eat grass, lions are carnivores, and it's very uncommon for one species. Let's just say, let's just say the, the homo sapiens, our species to have like some that would be designed to eat meats and some designed to eat plants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from all the research I've done, the evidence to me is overwhelmingly clear that we are designed to eat mostly a foundation of meat-based foods. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would I would start from with that as kind of like the framework, and I I, I just think humans were we're far as much we're far more similar than we are different things like we have different goals and different um cultures and societies and things like that that we need to account for because food does has become to, to play a role in more than just nutrition uh in the world today so that we have differences there but long story short is i do think we all are far more similar than we are different and we are designed to eat a similar diet and i believe the evidence of that is points towards a meat-based diet and as you started out as a dentist, so what got you focused more on meat-based? Did you see that people who ate meat-based had better teeth or was it just something that you yourself stumbled upon? Well, I actually started, I, I wouldn't say meat-based, but I started my health and fitness journey on more of the fitness side, oh. meaning I was an overweight kid. And when I was very young, like junior high, maybe even younger than that, like all I want to do is like fix my body composition, self-conscious, overweight kid, which maybe some people can relate to, but I wanted to get a grasp of that. So that's actually what led me down the health and fitness rabbit hole. Like I was kind of an obsession throughout high school. And then I, when I went to college, I was like, I didn't really know what I was going to major in. So I was recommended, you know, study chemistry. So I got a degree in chemistry 
I also got minors in biology and business, but I would focus the sciences through how can I build muscle? How can I lose fat? Mm-hmm. And to make a very long story short, I was recommended not to go to medical school, which was, which was what I was going to do. Uh, but recommended to go to dental school. And it sounded like an all right career profession. So I went that route and I just really continued to, that's when I started doing, I did some physique competitions. Uh, I did my first one when I was in dental school. And at that time I was actually writing about nutrition from like a fitness perspective, I would say health and fitness, but it was really just all about losing fat, building muscle. And a lot of times that will make someone healthier because most people today are overweight or obese. And if we improve their body composition, they tend to get healthier, but there's plenty of examples like I personally experienced as well as like close relatives. Like my dad's a perfect example. I pick on him a lot because he's a good example where you can have a good body composition and not be healthy. And so the health journey actually started taking off after I'd become a dentist. And I was like, you know what? I wasn't feeling as good as I, I wanted to. And that's where I, I started peeling back the onion, so to speak, and got me to very much meat-based eating only meat basically starting in 2017. And it's been, I don't know how many years now, over five years, uh, mostly eating just meat. <laughs> yeah, no, I can relate. Cause I got into the fitness and nutrition as a, you know, I was in more of the bodybuilding mentality, not so much doing competition, but just trying to eat the tuna tins and the oatmeal and <laughs> all the things that get you the, the bodybuilder body. But mm-hmm. yet along the lines, a lot of that malnutrition or focusing on aesthetics first, like you were mentioning versus health first, which we're going to talk about, um, really puts you even in more place of an issue. Like you have a nice lean body, but then you have all these health issues too. So I wanted to have you talk about something that you refer to as health first diet. I've heard you mention that on your podcast, when it comes to eating the carnivore approach, you are actually helping your body focus on health first versus the aesthetics first. I think most people are always focused on that fat loss, like I said, or the muscle gains, but I agree that health should come first and you get your body in this really nice state. And then, um, they're able to get more to that ideal look that they're, they're looking for. So tell me about the health first. I think just if a lot of people go into, let's just say the carnivore diet, but it could be a close relative of the carnivore diet, a meat-based diet. If they focus on like, look, I'm going to feel good. I want to get strong and cure health issues. A lot of times the body composition that they're after is a natural byproduct. And because not most people want to necessarily look like, you know, do a physique competition or something like that, which does take, like, if you just eat ad lib, any diet, you're not going to be able to do a physique competition. You have to take certain levers and under control, uh, cause that's not necessarily, it's not healthy to be like 4% body fat. Uh, so I like to focus on health first for a lot of people because they'll, they'll get their health. And then that is more of a long-term mindset as well. Someone that wants to just lose some weight, that's kind of a short-term mindset. Like, Oh, I'll just do this crash diet for 30 days, see how much weight I can lose. Uh, but if we focus on health, you could get healthy, you start feeling better. That is the, a lot of times the impetus to be able to stick with something long-term. Now, as a caveat, I am not against someone being like, look, fat loss is my main goal. And if I'm going to this diet and I'm going to start gaining weight, I'm not going to do it. So it's like, for some people, I'm like, look, maybe we, we all right, let's, let's focus on the fat loss. Let's get the results you want first. And then we can, we can use that as the motivation to get into long-term results. So I'm not against that at all. Uh, but 
I just find if most people could take a long-term approach saying, let's get healthy first. Let's, and a lot of times the body composition stuff just takes care of itself. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And health for some people, like I said, they're so malnourished. They're so, they haven't been eating right. They've been calorie restricting. And so you do, you put them on a protocol and they actually put on weight and they're like, wait mm-hmm. a second, I didn't sign up for this. Yep. And I'm like, you kind of have to feel that in order to nourish your body and nourish your cells and nourish your blood and all of these things that lead to less disease, less chronic illness, a better functioning metabolic system. And then we can dial in the weight loss. But like you said, there is going to be those people that are like, no, I don't want to put on any weight in order to be healthy. But, you know, it's it's all relative. Like social media tells us that we have to look a certain way, but health can come in a variety of shapes and sizes. So I wish more people could see that health should come first, maybe not yeah. the aesthetics until you get your health under control. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I see it very commonly just recently, someone, they had basically 100 pounds to lose. And they're very diligent about tracking their macros and their calories and things like that. And they're eating 1600 calories. I'm like, you're eating 1600 calories and you're hundred pounds to lose you. There's just, there's no, there's no way you can reach your goal by restricting calories yeah. like because you're already so low. There's no headroom, so to speak. So the only way to get to your goal is to actually, like, like you were saying, you need to fix your, your metabolism. The metabolism is just running way too slow. Uh, and so you can't basically, like, I, I like to say, you can't starve yourself like to long-term success. There's just, and that, that, so even if that person was like, okay, I'm gonna drop my calories down to 500 calories and maybe they lose an extra 20, 30 pounds by doing that. You, they're still not going to get their goal and you can't maintain 500 calories. Obviously that's starvation. So there's just no way to success except for the other way. You have to get healthy first. Yeah. yeah. And that was my case when I was coming out of a toxic mold exposure, my thyroid completely was obliterated. And so in order, my, my logical thought process was, okay, I need to flood my body with amino acids to help reboot my thyroid. So I did four months strict carnivore, Um, and really found that based on my numbers, just watching my thyroid, my body heat up, my body temperatures come up, my, my body in general changing and getting healthier after that exposure, that the carnivore approach was something that brought me better thyroid health. Now, did I achieve like a fit, lean, sculpted physique? No, I actually had to put on a little bit of weight in order to amp up that thyroid. But after that, when I shifted more to what I call carnivore with benefits, where I added more foods into a meat-based diet, then I was able to see the results that I was looking for once I titrated back on that stimulating you know, protein synthesis. But talk to me about fat loss on a carnivore diet, because I think a lot of people might have it, and then there's people that don't. So let's talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit. A lot of times, it is all about kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's where someone is starting from. We're all starting at different places, and I typically give two kind of character examples. We have John, for example, who is a 55-year-old male who's 100 pounds overweight. He's never done a diet in his life. He goes to the gym a couple times a week. So he's like this big, strong guy. He's never counted calories or anything like that. He goes on a carnivore diet and he just sees nothing but success. Weight comes off week after week after week after week. And he's happy with how he looks. He's strong in the gym. Everything's great. That story is very common. And then the other story, which is very common, is like the Sally, who we talk about, who has tried, who has been health conscious, has restricted calories in the past, has yo-yo dieted, who has, as a result of this, 
is holding a good amount of body fat and has a slow lowered metabolism. And she is in many ways, like in a worse spot than, than John. Uh, and so she may be like, hear about this carnivore diet. I can eat all I want. I don't have to restrict calories. That's wonderful. She starts eating a carnivore diet. A lot of times Sally feels great. Like month one, month two, like so much energy, like sleep is great, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, except for she's putting on weight and, like Sally does not want to put on weight. That's like one of the reasons that she's going to this diet. Uh, maybe a lot of times Sally will have other like gut issues or autoimmune or whatever it might be. So she might be seeing improvements there. And a lot of times if those improvements are significant enough, Sally will stick with it to see out the other side of the tunnel where then the body composition, she can eventually get it. But there are a lot of Sally's who maybe they don't have some kind of debilitating issue. All they see, they feel better than they did, but they're seeing the weight go up and they get very discouraged. And so these are two, like, I'll say like kind of common character caricatures, uh, but they require different approaches. <laughs> so whether I'm dealing with the John or a salad, dealing with John is pretty easy. Quite frankly, you're like, look, just eat meat mostly until you're satisfied. Keep going to the gym a few times a week. And you just let him be and he's, he's good. Sally needs a little more work, both in like the structuring of the program, but I would say also more of like on the coaching side of like support and being there for someone from like kind of more of a mental perspective on things. Yeah, for sure. Do you find that they're working with people? Do you find that men respond better to a carnivore approach versus women? Or I mean, once you get them past a certain, um, you know, month, you know, maybe the women have to adapt a little bit more to it or men too, but is there an adaptation and is there a gender difference when you're looking at people trying the carnivore approach? I think a lot of it has to come down to expectations for a lot of men for like the John, he doesn't expect to have a ripped six pack or anything like that. He was a hundred pounds overweight. He's dropped 70 pounds in the first six months, just eating meat till he's satisfied. Like he is so happy. And by all means he's successful. Whereas there could be, let's just say a female who wanted to lose 30 pounds and maybe she loses 10 pounds and she's feeling great, but she expects to be like super thin. Like you were talking about like social media expectations yeah. where in all perspectives, like she's getting healthier body compositions, even improving but she feels like she's failing because she doesn't live up to some kind of expectation. So I do think there's actually a good amount of that that happens. Uh, now, I do think there are certain circumstances where perhaps perhaps it's easier for men. I think a lot of times it has to do with the, with the history. Just women just tend to be more health conscious than men in general, I think. And so they are more likely to have done the yo-yo dieting. I was actually like more of a Sally personally. So I can relate to Sally better than a John, uh, but I've seen lots of Johns. So I, I don't necessarily think it's better or worse for men or women. I do think making certain adjustments, uh, I I found a lot of women do better with perhaps higher fat percentages than men who can do perhaps a bit more protein. I think a little bit has to do with muscle mass, uh, differences there. Uh, but so maybe small tweaks between the two, but nothing like dr drastic, like kind of like we were talking about earlier, we're, we're far more similar than we are different. Uh, we might have to do certain tweaks here and there for different people, but nothing like drastically like men should do carnivore and women should do like 20% carnivore and 80% lettuce. Like, I don't think that's, <laughs> that's the case. Yeah, no, it's always bio-individual for sure. Like I had a client who was a woman in her 60s that wanted to lose, you know, she has this family event coming and she wanted to lose like 20 pounds before she went. And she also was having a lot of gut issues. And I'm like, 
love to use a carnivore approach or a complete carnivore diet for such an issue for a therapeutic use of like I said the thyroid or rebooting the gut and within I think it was 21 days she lost 13 pounds so like she responded really well with her goal like weight wise Mm -hmm. but yet another client who was in her 40s that was like somebody who you would think she's younger she'll respond better she was putting on weight so it was like it was very different for them but at the same time health markers improved across the board so there's definitely some legit reasons for using it as a therapy for different adjuncts what about like long-term? Are you an advocate for just strict carnivore long-term or do you think there should be more of this, like what I call the carnivore with benefits where you start adding in more diversity of foods? Uh, I am not, for example, there's there's actually a good amount of examples of carnivores who have been doing it 10 plus years. And I think from an ancestral perspective, I don't really think, I'm not worried about like long-term health consequences like maybe we do it for a month or a year but we don't want to do it for 10 years or we're going to get cardiovascular disease or something like that uh but that said uh i don't think like i i don't think like everyone needs to be carnival i i I think we could we like most people would thrive just like a meat-based diet get rid of the processed junk that's the seeds the refined grains and the sugars and so meat makes up the foundation you can have some other whole single ingredient kind of plant foods i tend to tell people like fruits roots that are prepared properly are most ancestrally consistent but if you want to have some vegetables that are cooked like for me like i don't need any vegetables i haven't for a long time they actually upset my stomach quite a bit but i would have to cook them quite thoroughly so like i actually uh, i'm not sure if you're familiar with uh dr bill schindler he's an um uh anthropologist and he taught, he wrote a book called eat like a human. And the book talks a lot about, uh, how our ancestors would, if they were going to eat, be eating plant-based foods, they go through like these preparation techniques to make that thing more digestible so you can get nutrients out of it. So uh, I guess there's a long way of saying like carnivore, I think I'm not really worried about long-term, uh, I know it's not like studied, but we're not uh, like we're not going to wait to have long-term studies on eating mostly only meat. Like we'll be we'll be dead. I still think we're going to die. Like carnivore diet's not going to make us immortal. So, <laughs> so I don't think we're going to be have, we're going we're gonna to be able to wait for the long-term kind of results that might come out of this. So we a lot of, we have to defer to I think history, anthropology, and when I, I am fascinated by like anthropology, archaeology, especially dental archaeology, because teeth are the best fossils. And so a lot of the archaeologic record deals with teeth and, and the, and the skull. Uh, but I do, I just think that evidence is pretty overwhelming that we were through a lot of human evolution eating mostly just large fat animals. And so I don't have any reason to kind of think that our genetics that are still mostly, this is the whole discordance theory, which says basically we have these paleolithic old stone age bodies that are living in this fast food world. Our genetics haven't had like time to catch up to modern food. And so I think if we are eating consistently as we are designed, that to assume that's going to cause long-term issues, like a decreased lifespan, I I, I, I think the proof would have to be against that. Like that's the default. I think that's okay. If someone wants to prove against that, that the burden of proof would be on them. In in my opinion. 
Yeah. I heard you mention fruit. There's, you know, this movement of like meat and fruit. What do you think mm -hmm. about that? Like, I, I like the idea of it because we digest fruit so easily and out in nature, if you couldn't get the kill, you know, I'm learning how to bow hunt right now. And if I can't get the kill, at least maybe I can find some berries, you know, if I was a, a human living in the wild. So what do you think about that? Sure. I think from a couple of perspectives, one through like uh, anthropological perspective, I question how much fruit our like ancestors would have eaten because of the terrain living an African savanna, like not a lot of fruit. I I mean, surely we would have eaten fruit when it was available and such like that. And so I guess a couple of things. One is someone that is physically fit, not doesn't have metabolic syndrome, they're exercising and they eat fruit and they digest it well and they feel good with it. Like I think by all means, that's totally fine. Uh, for me, like I wanted to be able to add fruit back into my diet, uh, because why not, right? More options, it tastes good, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so I did a bunch of carb, carb experiments. It was like back in 2019. I, I wrote a long article on it. If people are interested, they could read that. I won't bore you with the details here. Uh, but I don't digest fruit well at all. There, I like I could have a little bit, like a little bit of berries here and I'm fine. I I remember trying to like I want like these apples. I I can't remember what brand what kind of apple it was. It was really good, like taste delicious. I really upset my stomach. And I was like, maybe that's just one off chance. Mm -hmm. So I try again, really upset my stomach again. I'm like, all right, one more time. Like, let's try it. And I just could not, like, I couldn't do it. Like, and I'm just talking one apple, not like a bushel of apples. Sure. So I, I, I'm just saying this. I think people have different experiences uh, with how much fruit, what fruit to include. And I, by all means, I think it could be something people can uh, test with. I do think people that are overweight, diabetic, uh, metabolic syndrome are better off limiting fruits. And I think they'll have more success limiting fruits. I'm not saying they have to totally eliminate them, but uh, I would limit those in those cases. Very cool to hear. Um, something you mentioned on your website, uh, people can actually get skinny eating steak. So going back to the fat loss thing, you have a, I think it's like a challenge that you have going on, get skinny eating steak. Tell me about that. Like, how can we get skinny eating steak? And going back to the, what we were talking about earlier, how some people, they get thin, but they don't get that, you know, lean svelte bodybuilder mentality. Can't, is there other things we can do to, you know, what's the fat ratio with the protein? I think that's a big misconception in a lot of carnivore approaches is like, should we do more fat? Should we do more protein? But if somebody's aesthetics are uh, something they're seeking and they want to get skinny eating steak, is it going to be a lean steak or is it going to be a fatty steak? Great question. So <laughs> we do at, at Meat Health, we run this challenge. It's a six week challenge called Get Skinny Eating Steak Challenge. And it kicks off our next one in January. And we just do it a couple times a year. Uh, but it's really for, I would say, two kinds of people. One being like someone who's done meat-based carnivore for a long time. And then and they haven't reached their body composition goals yet. This is a six-week kind of program that will for sure get them losing fat. But the other kind of person it's for is someone who's been thinking about like, ah, oh, maybe I want to do that carnivore diet. But really, I just want to lose fat. Like fat loss is the primary goal. They don't really care so much about the the means of getting to it. Yeah. Uh, but their goal is fat loss. And maybe they've heard about carnivore and they're like interested in like doing more meat based. Uh, so it's it's basically for these kinds of people to help 
the carnivores that have not lost the fat to lose the fat they want to help other people get into a meat-based diet and help them hit their primary target of losing fat first. And it's a short six weeks. And we do, we combine basically a meat-based diet, um, some principles, and I I can go through some of the details, uh, but we do a meat-based diet. It doesn't have to be meat only, although for the carnivores, they can do meat only. People that are coming from a standard American diet, I I generally tell them like, we're going to do meat-based. I lay out the criteria, what that means, mostly meat, but they can have leeway of other stuff. Uh, and we do, I combine that with some traditional bodybuilding techniques and cause I have a long history in, in that. And when these, when these are combined, it makes, uh, for sure. Like I, I can basically guarantee the results. Cause like at, at some point it's like, this is just science. Like I know, I, I know how to get results. Uh, but also with the meat-based people are getting health. It makes the fat loss easier, things like that. So this is just a challenge. It's a, basically a coaching challenge to help people lose fat. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's cause that's most people's goal. Like we, uh, I run this Facebook group called meat health. And when people request to join the group, one of the questions is like, what, like, why, why do you want to join this group or whatever it is? And I would say 90 plus percent is I like got fat loss is at least the number one priority or like one of the top reasons that they want. So it's a uh, fat loss is one of those things to help. It can be like we we're talking about earlier. One of those things that you can help give someone what they want on leading them to a proper diet. Uh, and so that's kind of how I think about it. Awesome. And now the, when it comes to, like you mentioned the weight training, which is huge. Cause if you're going to eat protein, you're going to be able to put on some mass if somebody's looking for lean gains and stuff like that. But as far as like, like if I were a client of yours and you have me doing weight training and we're eating a meat-based diet, are you going to focus on me eating more fatty meats or lean meats? So actually we have this concept in the program and I, I think it's just a good concept concept in general is called a meat minimum, but the meat minimum is based on grams of protein per day. So you have to eat your meat minimum and that needs to come from animals. And so we, the protein is kind of like the foundational target. Mm-hmm. And then once you hit that, then we have basically the two other levers. We have fat and we have carbohydrate. And for a lot of people, I don't like fat to go below, like even like if they want to include carbohydrates, I don't like fat to ever go below like 30% of their calories mm-hmm. for like hormone reasons. Sure. Uh, so that to me, 30% of fat would be like the lowest barrier of fat. And for people that want more flexible, we can, we can add the rest with carbs, but other people, they can fill up the rest with fat. Uh, and so for different people, it eventually, depending on how lean someone wants to get, it turns into a high protein diet relative to fat ratio. I, what I do not like to do, and this is, I know kind of, kind of controversial maybe is I don't like to stick hard and fast to ketogenic ratios in a caloric deficit when someone's trying to lose weight because protein a lot of times gets too low and those people will lose muscle mass and their metabolism will take a hit because of that. And so after that fat loss period, a lot of times they get, like, I don't like the word skinny fat, but like they lost weight, but they lost fat and they lost muscle. And a lot of times in a similar proportion to what they were. So like their body composition didn't actually change at the same body fat frequently the body composition gets worse. Like, so I see someone go on a caloric restricted diet, even if they're eating a lot of protein and not working out, or if they are working out and not eating enough protein, like one of those two things, they lose muscle mass and their body composition, their actual body fat percentage goes up, even though the scale is going down. And to me, that's the number one, I always say the number one rule of fat loss is don't lose muscle because the number one rule, like what most people do with fat loss is the yo-yo diet. They, they restrict calories 
they lose weight. That weight is fat and muscle. And then when they rebound weight gain, they rebound fat without the muscle. And so we get the situation where the fat keeps going up, the metabolism keeps going down, yeah. muscle keeps going down. And it's like, that's the wrong thing. So when, when we focus on fat loss, we are going to lose fat, but we're going to really focus on not losing muscle. And the way to not lose muscle is keep adequate protein. And I think most people, adequate protein, in my opinion, is high protein for most people's opinion. Uh, but high, high, moderate protein with resistance training. And that's going to give you the best chance to spare all your muscle when you're doing a fat loss phase. What's a typical day look like for if somebody's working on their aesthetics and they're working on their fat loss on a carnivore approach or a meat-based diet? What would that look like? Let, let's say an average... 150 pound person, maybe even man or woman, doesn't matter. 150 pound person, I would say an average day would be at least a pound and a half of, I, I really emphasize beef uh, and we could talk about why, but I just think the ruminant nutrition is superior to the monogastric, the chicken, the pigs and uh, chicken. So I, I do focus the ruminant meat. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be beef. It could be, it could be elk, bison. Yeah. There's other ruminants, but I focus on that. So it could be a, a pound and a half of ruminant meat. It could be a half dozen eggs. Um, it could be some, depending on who they are and what their goals are. It could be even some dairy. A lot of people don't do great with dairy, but some people do. I actually do quite well with dairy, which I brought dairy in for the first time this year. So I, for the previous five years, I basically didn't eat any dairy. Not only the previous five years, basically my entire life, I've never eaten much dairy. Uh, it's just something I was never really included much besides whey protein, if you would consider that dairy. Right. Uh, but this year I tried dairy for the first time, raw milk, and I didn't know what to expect. I actually thought I wouldn't be able to stomach it very well because- I mean, lactase persistence is, that's how we digest the lactose. And I figure I wouldn't have any lactase persistence if I uh, wasn't consuming milk throughout my life. But I have been able to, I drink, I tested high limits of milk and I feel just fine with it. So for those people that can do milk or even some, you know, cheese here, here and there, yogurts, whatever they can tolerate or enjoy. It, it can look something like that. Like that's very, that is meat-based carnivore. Now, someone that doesn't want to be that strict, it would be, I would find some kind of fruits that they do well with. I'd, and ideally I like to find a handful of things that they do well with. And I, I'll t explain why, but a handful of fruits and maybe a handful of what we'll call vegetables or roots uh, that, that's going to work for them in their life that they enjoy and they digest well. I do recommend a handful of different things because certain things like potatoes, interestingly, in my carbohydrate experiments, potatoes were the one thing, the one thing that I tested inconsistently that I, I tend to do just fine with. I cooked them very well and I peeled them, but digestively, I felt fine. Energy felt fine. And that was like, I can't say that for like almost anything else, right. but I caution against people because it's like, what I wouldn't want to do is have someone like me who's like, really all I do well is with potatoes. And then they eat potatoes every single day. Because potatoes, for example, they're high in something called glycoalkaloids and glycoalkaloids can bioaccumulate and cause issues. So if you only have one plant-based food that you eat every day, year round, year after year, that's a potential for issues. Whereas if you're eating, maybe you have a potato this day, maybe you have a little bit of fruit this day, a different sure. vegetable this day, you can spread out your toxic load. So not one toxic, like, like oxalates, like there are a lot of people eat like one particular handful of foods that are all high in oxalate. So they can have an oxalate issue. The whole idea is to kind of spread out those toxins. So maybe you get low doses of various toxins, but you're able to handle them. No big deal versus 
focus on one toxin, bioaccumulate it and have an issue. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So you're saying a pound to a pound and a half meat per day, or is that just at breakfast for that? hundred? Oh no, per, per day. That'd be roughly 150 grams of protein. Okay. Uh, so that would kind of be, so for that person, I would say that's your meat minimum. And I wouldn't restrict them to that. I would be like, if you want to do more, you can, that's like your minimum one, shoot for one and a half. So that'd be half a pound per meal. And if you want to do more than that, you can, you can do more than that, or you can, you know, add the eggs or, the, or the milk or, or, you know, we, we can round out the meal, but that's basically the, I, I would think what's the baseline of this person's diet. It's going to, if they're 150 pounds, it's going to be, uh, basically one and a half pounds of, of ruminant meat that to me is the baseline of their diet and then we'll we'll fill in from there uh i do think for fat loss most people this is also semi-controversial but uh for fat loss i would recommend most people don't do one meal a day i don't recommend forced fasting for fat loss i would do two or i think is more ideal three meals a day so that one and a half pounds of ruminant meat for that 150 pound person i would say ideally you're going to have a half a pound for breakfast half pound for lunch half pound for dinner I, I would spread it out relatively equally throughout the day. Yeah, really good for balancing a blood sugar throughout the day too, which helps calm that nervous system down and not increase cortisol with all the excessive fasting one meal a day kind of thing. So now that, yeah, uh, yeah I was just going to add on. It's like the one of the main reasons that I think I, why I don't like, I like to separate in that is like muscle protein synthesis. Like the number one rule of fat loss is don't lose muscle. Yeah. Well, when we eat like a, 50 grams of protein in that first meal, it's going to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein synthesis kind of acts on this arc. And it's like a three to four hour arc. And after four hours, it's back down to zero, so to speak. And so when we have our next meal, we can get that arc going again. We get the, so we can get three pulses of muscle protein synthesis versus someone's doing one meal a day that only gets one pulse, yeah. which to me is far less ideal. Uh, and it's, it's why, you know, tra- traditional bodybuilders would eat five meals a day. They would space them out in roughly three hours. So muscle pro- positive nitrogen balance all day long. So they can be basically the body can be building muscle throughout the day. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if we were going to switch gears and talk about teeth, so as a dentist, I'd love to get your take on teeth from the standpoint of why we're shown to be meat eaters. I mean, obviously we have some canines going on, but like from the dental perspective, let's talk. There's a, this is a huge rabbit hole of, we can take many different directions. So I, whatever's most interesting to you, I'd like to look at it from, I think what's helpful for people to understand is like, what if we think like, we know what causes bad oral health. So let's think about like, what's the worst thing you can do for your teeth uh, specifically. And then, so that then we have good guidelines on what not to do, because if it's really bad for your teeth, it's probably not that congruent with what you, the rest of your body should be eating. It's, I don't think that should be that controversial. Like if you're eating it and it's destroying your teeth, does it, it doesn't make a lot of sense that it's like, oh, that's great for the rest of the body either. So if you, if someone wanted to destroy their teeth, the best way to do it is drink, drink acidic sugar drinks on like throughout the day. That's the best way to destroy your teeth because these drinks, they're acidic already. Uh, so there's this research study that showed 93% of store-bought drinks are acidic already. Like even without sugar, they're already acidic things with citric acid, malic acid, phosphoric acid, these acids in the drinks already make them acidic, which is going to erode at the, at the teeth. The second thing is the sugar is fermented by bacteria in the mouth, which produces more acid. And the next thing is the sugar drinks, they don't require you to chew and chewing most modern food today doesn't require you to chew very much. It's like mush, like baby food. Uh, 
but chewing stimulates saliva and saliva plays a very important role in buffering acids. So you have this acidic drink, it's full of sugar, you're not chewing. And the fourth thing to like the nail in the coffin is like, if you're drinking it, you drink it throughout the day. And so an example is if you take one sip of, uh, it's not Mountain Dew, I'm drawing, I'm drawing a blank, uh, Red Bull, one sip of Red Bull, it takes roughly 30 minutes. Like you drink the Red Bull, the at the acid production, the pH drops. That means it gets more acidic yeah. drops for about 30 minutes. And so the worst thing you can do, it takes 30 minutes for the body to recover and back and normalize that pH. But what people do is like they drink and then a half hour later, you know, they get another drink. And so they're back into the acidic environment again. So this is the worst thing you can do for your teeth. And what this tells me is like, what we don't want to be doing is eating carb-based foods all the time that really don't require a lot of chewing. Like, and so a lot of this is like the standard American diet and the way we could prevent cavities is like, if you don't eat carbs, chewing a lot is good. Uh, infrequent meals, like you eat a meal and you're done and a lot of these things actually just point towards like, oh, we should be eating mostly meat. You know, if we're going to eat some carbohydrates, it definitely should be something that you're like, it requires chewing and it's done once in a meal and then you're done. Mm-hmm. Not just like this snacking that goes on all day long. So that's, I would say from a high level point of view, from a teeth perspective and keeping healthy teeth, some good clues on what, on what we should and should not be eating. Uh there's a lot more we can go into as far as like the chewing plays an incredibly important role in craniofacial development so that we get full, so we develop full jaws, big airways, so we can have all our teeth that fit into our mouth so we don't take wisdom teeth out, so we don't get crooked teeth, so we have an airway that we don't have sleep apnea. Like, so there's, there's a lot of rabbit holes here that we can talk about. Yeah. Uh, but the in general, if like if someone wants to have like healthy teeth, it's like you limit carbohydrates. And if you, if you do that, what's interesting, I've tried to really go through the research on ketogenic diets and, and caries, and there's like no good research, uh, which is very surprising because dental caries cavities is the most common disease in the world. And you would think there would be tons of research on like, how do we prevent this disease? It's the most common disease in the world. And to me, like the solution is you just stop eating carbohydrates. So I would think there'd be lots of studies on ketogenic diets and caries. And there's like no studies. It is shocking. Uh, but the studies that are out there consistently show that if you don't eat carbohydrates, you're not going to likely get any cavities. Well, let's shift. You mentioned airways. And I do want to talk about, because you're you're pretty prolific in sleep apnea, which is so prevalent these days. So prevalent. And the solution is to go to the doctor and get on the sleep app machine, the CPAP, and and Bob's your uncle. You're all done. But that's, it could be a lot better than that. We could actually go to the root of the issue. So talk to me about that. Yes. So for some context, there is this niche area of dentistry called dental sleep medicine. And when I was in dental school, uh, you know, I was, I, th- I thought dentistry was a great profession and all that, but I didn't see myself like drilling and filling 40 hours a week for the next 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not, it's rough to realize that when you're in the middle of paying $50,000 a year to go to school. Uh, but I was fortunate to dental school barely touches on it. But when I heard about this sleep apnea and this dentist and dentist have a novel way to treat this this condition and the prevalence of it. I was like, this seems like a, like a huge issue. So after I graduated dental school, I went, I went and did a bunch of, uh, like advanced training in dental sleep medicine. And I was hooked. I opened up a practice exclusively de- dedicated to treating sleep apnea. And it was a, a, a rapid learning curve. Uh, but to get at, first of all, I might as well explain like what dentists do. You, like you mentioned the traditional 
treatment for sleep apnea is this thing's called CPAP, continuous positive air pressure. It's this hose you put on your mouth. It pumps air through the airway. It's basically a pneumatic splinting of your airway. It sounds ridiculous. It is ridiculous, but it does work for those that can wear it. Now, 50% of people roughly cannot, like they are literally choking in your sleep, which is what sleep apnea is. The airway shuts off and the blood oxygen drops below 90% on a recurring basis throughout the night. So basically you're not getting any sleep. You're suffocating your tissues and organs. Uh, But even though they're dying in their sleep, they cannot tolerate this treatment. And I don't blame them. Uh, So for the other 50%, and even the what I found, which was shocking in, when I, in my practice, I would see patients like I'm wearing the CPAP machine. Yeah. It's saving my life, but I hate it. I would rather use this oral device. And so what dentists can do is they can make, they can custom fit an oral device. That's going to position the jaw in a forward position that opens the airway. It's kind of like CPR. They teach you to lift the jaw to open the airway. Uh, and so as dentists, we make these devices, we find the right position opens up the airway. And so that's what I was doing. And so that's an alternative treatment to sleep apnea. The question, long way of getting to the answer is like, what's the cause of sleep apnea? And the cause is it's multifaceted, but in the, the gist of it is we have this airway that is too small, (laughs) uh, or it's big enough, but it's getting impeded. What I mean by that is a, a simple example is we have these mouths that are too small. I can go back and discuss that, but we have these mouths that are already too small because of poor craniofacial development. And then we have these tongues that are the normal size that they should be. Mm-hmm. Now, what the reason sleep apnea is so bad in overweight and obesity is the body will deposit fat in the tongue because like, as you get fatter and more obese, the body's like looking for places to de- deposit energy fat and it'll deposit it in the tongue. And so we already have small mouths. We have this tongue that's already too big for the mouth. And then we start putting fat in it. And the only place the tongue can go is backwards. Like there's no other, like there's no other room. And so the airway starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And this, and the tongue will fall back. It'll obstruct the airway. And so, uh, by push pulling the jaw forward, it helps pull that tongue for, for forward and make room in the airway, uh, for people to sleep apnea. So the, the main cause is the, the airway is too small and the airway is too small because of fatty tongue. That's what I call it. Uh, kind of like fatty liver, it's fatty tongue. Uh, our mouths are too small because of poor craniofacial development. Uh, if we look at the archeologic record, we like the ancient skulls, 32 teeth fit in, they come in straight. Like that is the normal genetic blueprint. All the malocclusion that is basically normal and expected today is a, a modern day phenomenon. Uh, and when we don't have full development of the uh, maxilla and the mandible, it's the top and bottom jaws. The dental arch is smaller, it shrinks, and the teeth are trying to come in into a smaller area. And so they just come in where they can fit. And a lot of times the third molars, the wisdom teeth, there's just nowhere they can come in. So they come in impacted. And that's why we have to get wisdom teeth taken out so much. But we have these mouths that are too small and that's the primary cause of sleep apnea. And then we combine that with a fatty tongue and we're doomed. (laughs) Uh, Mouth breathing plays a big role in this because all these things kind of lead to a slack jaw, an open jaw, mouth breathing, poor oral posture. And the tongue is supposed to like rest on the palate. And if we have an open mouth, we're mouth breathing, it doesn't rest there. The tongue loses the necessary muscle tone to be in the proper place. So that happens to people then when they're sleeping, the tongue should be on the palate, but instead it's falling back in their mouth. So there's actually, I'm, I'm, I'm touching on like a hundred different things that are contributing to sleep apnea, yeah, no, uh, but they're all kind of like 
they're all related. <laughs> I love that you brought up that fatty tongue because I hadn't heard that before you had said it. Well, I think I might have heard you say it in a podcast or read it somewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm like, even no one teaches you that in nutrition school that people are storing fat in their tongue, you know, and that's one of the major issues because a lot of times that we're taught inflammation, you know, that everything's getting inflamed and then the tongue gets in the way and stuff like that. But it makes total sense that the body will put fat anywhere it can when it needs to deposit it. So, yeah. Yeah. I relate it to like fatty liver because fatty liver was a disease that was basically coined in like the eighties. Mm -hmm. Like that's a pretty recent phenomenon to start right. getting a new disease. And the prevalence of fatty liver in the United States is approximately the same as the prevalence of fatty tongue. I, by that, I mean, obstructive sleep apnea. It's almost like a quarter of adults have obstructed airway breathing. What's the, what's a nice natural remedy then if we know the problem is fatty tongue? I mean, you hear a lot of people will lose weight and then their sleep apnea gets better, but yep. you actually developed a device that in the meantime can really help people. So tell me about Ned. Yes. So the first of all, natural remedies, like you were saying is weight loss goes a long way to improving. And many people can even like, I'll say cure sleep apnea, not everyone, but it, a lot of times it improves sleep apnea. Second thing people can do is something called positional therapy. So if you sleep on your back, gravity is against you and that's pulling everything back. And so positional therapy teaches people to sleep on their sides. I could never do that personally. Like I am a back sleeper. If I'm on my sides, my arms falling asleep, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, so, but positional therapy is something that is an option. One thing that they'll do is it seems cruel. You can tie like a tennis ball on the back of a shirt. Right. And right. so you roll onto your back and the body's like, Nope. All right. I'm going back over to my side. Uh, the other treatment options you have CPAP machine. We talked about that. That people may hear it as auto pap. There's a pap, which is we don't need to go into the details of the difference, but it's still just blowing air to keep the airway open. So you got pap, that the auto pap, CPAP, dentists making oral devices. There's tongue retaining devices, which you basically stick your. It's, it looks like a pacifier, and you stick your tongue in it, and it basically pulls the tongue out of your mouth. I don't know anyone who's ever worn one of these long term. Uh, seems very uncomfortable. I think they're moderately effective though, because it, it is pulling the tongue out of the back of the throat. So if you're able to sleep with that, that is an option. Let's see if there's other options. Now what I was doing, so I was in, in my practice, I'm treating patients, I'm giving them these oral devices that, and what I noticed right away is, so a lot of times a sleep physician would refer me their patient or the patient would find me and I would see they already have a sleep physician because they have a diagnosis. You need to get a diagnosis from a sleep physician. As a dentist, I can't diagnose sleep apnea. I can read the study, I can treat it, but I can't diagnose them. So they have to get a diagnosis from a sleep physician. So I'm seeing the patient, let's say they have an AHI, this is an apnea hypopnea index, which is basically the measure of severity of sleep apnea. Let's just use a simple example. Let's say they have like an AHI of 20. That means 20 times an hour, they're having an episode, which is a lot, but that's considered moderate sleep apnea. That's not even severe. Uh, so they have moderate sleep apnea every 20 times an hour, the airway is shutting down, their oxygen, the blood is dropping. Uh, and the body's waking itself up. I know we didn't talk about that. The body will pump adrenaline so it doesn't suffocate in the sleep. So the body pumps adrenaline. A lot of times these awakenings are subconscious. So it doesn't consciously wake the person up, although it can. Uh, and so let's go back to this example. He's got, this person has a 20 AHI, uh, their moderate severity. I would treat them with an oral device. And let's say I got them down to a 10, an AHI of 10. 
a lot of people consider that a success. It's like you took them from a 20, you, they now have half the episodes. Uh, good job. I'm like, and so, you know, I play with the device, try to get it better and better and better. And let's just say 10 is the best I can get them with the oral device and they can't wear the CPAP machine. The, the common like medical solution is like, that's good. That's the best you could do. And like, to me, that set did not sit well at all. I'm like, that's the best we can do. And a lot of times the sleep physician, I would, so I saw the patient then I would communicate with the sleep physician and be like, they weren't wearing their CPAP. We made an oral device for them. They're wearing the oral device. We improved based on it's better than nothing. And so you gave them a CPAP. They weren't wearing it. I gave them an oral device. They at least got 50% better. So I'll read. So I talk with a physician and they're like, 10 isn't good enough. We need to put them back on CPAP. And I'm like, they weren't wearing the CPAP. We got to do something, right? He's like, yeah, they need to be on CPAP because CPAP, you can, you can pump air at a pressure high enough to keep any airway open, but the patient just can't tolerate that. So there's a long way of saying like, I was like, I need something else. Like what, what are we going to, what am I going to do to solve this problem? And so I had this idea for NED. NED stands for nasal EPAP dilator. And what it is, is it's this device that goes in the nose and it, it's a nasal dilator. So a nasal dilator, basically it dilates the nasal cavities. And we know, and part of the idea came from, because we know through research, when we combine the oral device with the nasal dilator, it improves results because it helps facilitate nasal breathing, which is what we need. And, but alone, it's not enough. Like it helps, but it's definitely not enough. It's like, if I gave someone an oral device and a nasal dilator, we could get some better results, but it's not like going to move the needle. So I needed something else. And that's where EPAP came in. EPAP is this, it's a known technology that has been used to help improve uh, sleep apnea. And what it is, is when you breathe out, stands for expiratory positive air pressure. So we talked about CPAP, which is continuous positive air pressure. That's using a machine to pump air to keep the airway open. EPAP is expiratory positive air pressure. So it's basically using your own exhalation to act as that CPAP device. So when you breathe out, it's a slowed exhalation that helps keep the airway splinted open. And so when I started using, so I, I created this device and it's not yet for, for people that are listening, it's not yet FDA approved for sleep apnea. I'm not sure we even want to, to get that way. Long story, but then you have to get a diagnosis and a prescription and it's, it's a lot of work instead. Uh, I've just been using it for snoring and it treats snoring quite well. So that's kind of the, the high level view of what Ned was and all the sleep apnea options that are out there. So like Ned is not an option for sleep apnea at this time, because it's not FDA approved for apnea. Cause you have to have a prescription device for apnea, but it is for snoring and the way to view snoring is kind of like it's on one end of the spectrum. Snoring is like a closing of the airway. Uh, it's not a healthy thing. No one should be snoring. I think something, a, a huge percentage of people snore at least to some degree. So net is a snoring that, option. Oh, okay. Would that work for someone that has a deviated septum too? A lot of times it helps improve people with a deviated septum because the nasal dilator part of it will help facilitate the nasal breathing. People with a deviated septum a lot of times have a hard time breathing through their nose, uh, which turns them into a mouth breather. So by having the dilator helps facilitate nasal breathing. And a lot of times I see improved results for sure. Fantastic. That's awesome. Okay. So we'll put that, that link in the show notes for people to check that out. Cause that's super interesting. In fact, I think I might have to grab one of those for a family member that has a deviated <laughs> septum because- they complain about not being able to breathe all the time. So, um, but I want to shift gears before we wrap up here and talk about your thoughts on Bitcoin. This is totally unrelated to anything else, but I just love to talk about Bitcoin because I, I'm invested in it. Like, I think it's awesome. So tell me your thoughts. 
I obviously love Bitcoin. I have a drawing that I did this year behind me, a picture of Bitcoin and a melting dollar. Uh, yeah, I, I, so what's interesting is I've, I've kind of always been interesting, interested. I'm not a, like a Luddite, meaning like I don't, I, I'm interested in new technologies and new things. And I like to try and solve problems. Maybe someone could tell, like, I, like, I think that's how my brain is wired. It's like problem, solve it problem. Like, what can we do to solve it? And what's interesting, I was in 2013, it was the first real Bitcoin bubble. And I was, I heard about this technology. It was interesting. So I went and got a Bitcoin wallet and whatever, started learning about it. And it was in 2016 where 2016, 2017, I'm not going to bore people with a long story, but I just really went deep down the rabbit hole. I am, I am a voracious, voracious, uh, reader and learner. I am all about online education, mm -hmm. uh, self-education. And so I took all kinds of like just courses on my own, all about Bitcoin. I went down deep in the rabbit hole, uh, everything through, you know, starting about the hash rates and, and, you know, every, basically I, I, how the inner plumbing works. Like, mm -hmm. so I, so I understood like what Bitcoin was and I was just so convinced that it was the future in 2017. And I still am convinced that it is the future today. Uh, but so in 2016, 2017, I just kind of like, that was like my all in investment strategy was like, I think this is the future uh, for many different reasons. Uh, and, and, and I think today, definitely the 2008 financial crisis was like, and interestingly, like Bitcoin was, the protocol was released shortly after that. Uh, but I think the situation today where you don't, you don't really know you don't own your own money until you can't get it out of a bank or you can't, you know, et cetera. And I, I think it's a really important kind of property rights, like personal property rights. I am a big believer in, but it's like, what do you really own? Like if you own a house or whatever, but the government could easily go be like, you know, we're going to tax you X percent of your prop, pro, you know, personal property tax. Do, do you really own that? Like, what do you really own? And when I start kind of going down that rabbit hole, it's like, you don't really like you own stuff. You think you own stuff until, you know, the bank takes your house or you, et cetera. So I, the Bitcoin rabbit hole is very deep. And so that is what the one thing where, you know, a lot of times a lot hard lessons have to be learned this past year. A lot of hard, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of hard lessons were learned by people like not your coins or, you know, not your keys, not your coins. Like, right. so this, a lot of these exchanges blew up and people had their coins held by someone else. The whole point is you own your own, your own stuff. Instead, they're having other people custody their money. And then those, those, those companies were basically fraudulent, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they lost their, their money. So there's a lot of hard lessons, but I do think on the other side, of, like Bitcoin is going to be the last man standing. Why do people want to be decentralized? Like you have the Bitcoin melting the dollar. What would you say to that? So the dollar melting, it's not like, it's not nothing like my personal opinion. That's the, the value of the dollar over the last, uh, since 1913 or something like that. Like the, the value of the dollar is just like, it's just melted away. And Bitcoin is actually designed to do the exact opposite. It is a deflationary. So the U.S. dollar is very much inflationary. We got a very strong, uh, you know, lesson this past year about the inflation of the dollar. Uh, but the dollars, it's not just this year. I mean, it's been inflationary since its inception. Uh, I, I should say, especially since it's been untied to gold in the 70s, but it's, it's an inflationary asset, if you want to call it an asset. Uh, so it's designed to melt away. That, that, that dollar just melted like 
if you held, if you're old and you held for the last hundred years, held your money in cash, like you're, you can't retire. For example, you're, you're in trouble. Uh, and Bitcoin is deflationary. It's a set supply at 21 million Bitcoin and Bitcoin is being lost every day. So it, it is in essence, like if there's a 21 million cap and more people adopt it, it becomes more valuable over time. Uh, and when you hold a deflationary asset, while it's deflating, everything else gets less expensive because that's kind of the whole point. <laughs> so your purchasing power increases, uh, which is the exact opposite of an inflationary asset. So yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's just, that's why the dollar is melting. It was just a depiction of what it's actually done. No, it's, and now is a good time for people to buy Bitcoin because it's quite down. <laughs> it it really is. I remember in my newsletter, it was 2018. Uh-huh. Bitcoin was at $3,000 oh after, after the 2017 crash. Yeah. And so I was like, I, this is unpopular opinion to say, but I think this is a very good time like to take a strong, it's not financial advice, but I think this is a good time to take a look at Bitcoin at $3,000. For sure. And people that took me up on that are happy. People that took like the advice when it was at $60,000 and were like, all right, I'm going all in. All right. That, that was bad timing, but uh, yeah. No, that's so cool. So yeah, it's so just a quick little trail I wanted to go down because it's something that I always am, am kind of excited to talk to people about that know the value of Bitcoin. So I, I love it. I, I know how people, I, I listen to lots of health podcasts, yeah. but I, I listen probably to more Bitcoin podcasts these days. <laughs> uh, I do most of my health through like reading books and literature. <laughs> so my podcast that I heard in my ear is always the Bitcoin podcast. Well, it's like how we do anything is how we do everything. So we want to improve our physical, our mental, our, you know, our body mechanics, stress and, and fitness, but we also want to improve our life and make sure that, you know, what's ours is ours and we're taking care of it. And that's where I think you see a lot of people in fitness also looking at Bitcoin. So yeah, like I like to follow a neurosurgeon, Dr. Jack Cruz, who talks a lot about Bitcoin too. So I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to look him up. Yeah. He's a really fascinating guy. So, well, we'll wrap up here, but I want you to tell people about your, your meat health Academy, a little bit about that and some of your challenges. You know, I know you even have some free stuff on your website, like the dangers of a plant-based diet and stuff like that, that people can get their hands on. So tell me some of your links. I really like your newsletter too, by the way, the Saturday seven is pretty cool. So tell us about that. I think the best place for people that are interested in learning more. So I run the site meat.health. That's the Mm -hmm. site. There's free guides. Like people want to know like what's wrong with plants. So I wrote an ebook. It's like 75 pages, something like that, which goes into like some detail about like, this is why I stopped eating plants, Mm -hmm. uh, how to do a 30 day, like the, the, uh, like people that want to do a carnivore diet. Here's a 30 day guide, free guide. Uh, there's, there's, I think another ebook up there. Mm-hmm. Meat Health Academy is anyone that goes into a carnivore diet. There's, you think it's simple, like eat meat, drink water, done, right? But there is like so much complexity that comes under that. Yeah, millions of questions, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. How do you do this? Meat Health Academy is what I put together to the in essence to take the last 20 plus years of my time in nutrition and condense it into two days so it's basically like 14 to 16 hours of video trainings on how to do a meat-based diet why you do it there's advanced stuff on like advanced fat loss advanced advanced muscle building uh, but it, i'm the kind of person like i want 
if I'm going to someone, I want the best that they have all packed up, packaged nicely. Like I think podcasts are great, but like if someone could just wrap it all together for me, be like, just focus on this. I'll be like, thank you. So that's kind of what Meet Health Academy is. Uh, people don't need to enroll in it. Like you can get a lot, almost all the information you can get is free, like free guides. You can find it in podcasts like this, YouTube, but that is kind of a compendium all organized together. Uh, so that's Meet Health Academy. And yes, like you said, I read a Saturday newsletter called the Saturday seven, which I think is like, I try to put my best stuff from the week Very into that. Yeah. So people don't have to follow me on social media. Cause I feel like a lot of people are doing less social media these days, uh, which I think is a positive. <laughs> I think I, I agree. I, like to me, I'm on it as like a necessary evil. I would, yeah. I would get rid of it all tomorrow if I could. Uh, so the Saturday seven is where it's like, Hey, you don't follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, that's fine. I'm gonna put the best of it in the Saturday seven. Yeah. I love newsletters. I'm like old school. I don't want to go on a feed. So I really appreciate the newsletters. So keep them coming. And so then they can also find you on kevinstock.io, right? That, yeah. Kevinstock.io is like my personal website where you, there's nutrition stuff. There's Bitcoin stuff. There's <laughs> yearly challenges, which I'm about Music. to start a new one. I do yearly cha- challenges. Music was a yearly challenge. <laughs> Art was my 2019 right. uh, yeah. learn to draw challenge. So awesome. 2019, the challenge was I had to learn to try to learn to draw by spending at least five minutes a day practicing. And so I came, I've come a, a fairly long way. To me, the most impressive thing is it's how many years later that I'm still doing it. That's mm-hmm. to to me, it's like, I don't how good I am, whatever. But most people like can't, sticking with something is the hard part. So uh that's no, to me is like, like that. when it comes to diet, I'm like, anyone can do a good, perfect diet for a week. It's all that. So it's like, what about yeah. 10 years later? For sure. So. No, I think I love it that you're always learning new things. I mean, that's why I call my business get fit with Jodell. We should always be learning and growing and progressing. And that's what a beautiful life is all about. So one last question I like to ask them, according to a, a quote by Audrey Hepburn that goes, I believe that every day should have at least one exquisite moment. So Kevin, what would you say your exquisite moment is today? Oh, I, first of all, I love that. I probably need to tattoo that. Cause I think some days go by when I'm like, did I have an exquisite moment yeah. today? today? <laughs> so far this by far, uh, that we have some beautiful snow. It's mm-hmm. great to see right now, but I'm not a huge snow fan. So I'll enjoy the moment, the visual moment, but then I have to go like unshovel my car to go to the gym. That that'll be less of an exquisite moment. Yeah. Uh, but yes, by far, thank you for sharing that. I, I think that's a great way to like, like end the day to be like, what was the exquisite moment of the day? Help you Absolutely. look for those positives in the day. Yeah. I'm all about every day should have like a vacation spot in your day. Like what was the thing you looked forward to and you got to do that wasn't a device. It wasn't Netflix. You know, it wasn't your social media. It was like you doing something that made today special because every day should be special. So oh, and yeah, that. we're both in the Midwest dealing with a nice big ice snowy storm. <laughs> so we got to make the best of it. I, I hope to go outside after this because once we're on a device for so long, we need fresh air no matter how cold it is. But that's that'll be my exquisite moment to just go outside. It's fresh, cold air, apparently. So It'll, it'll wake us up because I'm, <laughs> right. I'm planning on doing the same thing. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'll love to have you back on because there's still a wealth of questions that I could ask you. So, Well, thanks for having me on. I have enjoyed talking. I hope I didn't just ramble on too long. Nope. You're in good company. I'm a rambler too. So we'll, we'll do some more rambling. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. 
love how unique you are and that your needs and diet are as unique as your fingerprint. That's why not every diet in the world will work for you because you're special, okay? So as your nutritionist, I believe in your bioindividuality and it's my job to act as your nutrition detective and find the root of your issues and create a more optimized U2.0. So are you looking to ease some digestive distress or maybe dial in your sleep? What about lowering environmental stress that could be causing, you know, stuff like undue anxiety? What about food struggles and emotional connections to food? Or maybe you're simply suffering from diet confusion and not sure where to start to improve your health. That's where I come in. So let's set up a free 15-minute call to see if I'm right for you. That's right. All you're going to do is email me at getfitwithjodell at gmail.com. That's J-O-D-E-L-L-E. And let's just chat about you and see if we're a good match when it comes to getting you the results you've been waiting for. And no matter where you are, you could be in Asia, Brazil, Chicago, or somewhere in between, we can connect via Zoom or phone or any way you like to get you the results and your health once and for all. Let me be your guide and let me get you there. But in a good way, because I took my methylene blue, that is. Two of my favorite supplements for optimizing my mitochondria, those little energy factories in virtually every cell of our body, are a product called methylene blue and also magnesium. And both can be found really great sources at lifeblood.co, the most authentic and well-researched form of methylene blue and magnesium that I have found to date is the one carried by Lifeblood. We know magnesium is our calming mineral and responsible for over 800 different processes in the human body, helping with calming you for sleep, easing constipation, creating a better heartbeat, thwarting chocolate cravings and sugar cravings, and even easing leg cramps and spasms, plus much, much more. And I don't know where I'd be during the last three years, during a time when many around us were ill without my methylene blue to keep my cells' immunity going. Methylene blue is antiviral, antiparasitic, antimicrobial, and even helps combat candida overgrowth. You can get yourself my two favorite supplements by clicking the link in the show notes for Lifeblood and using my promo code JODELL, J-O-D-E-L-L-E, to save on your very own purchase of those two items or any of the wonderful products at lifeblood again that promo code is j-o-d-e-l-l-e to save and just visit the show notes below and click the link i think you'll be glad you did 